This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Special Thursday edition this week. We're on the off day between games two and three. The Royals are up 2-0 heading back to New York. I'll be there on Saturday, 4 o'clock Eastern on MLB Now, MLB Network with Brian Kenny and friends. Joining me now, MLB.com's own Anthony Kastritz. Anthony, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you, man? I'm doing wonderful. Anthony, I'm uh, really looking forward to having you on for a couple reasons. Obviously, I like all the work you've done, but you are pro bat flip, which I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> you once wrote on Sports on Earth that the error may be baseball's most obnoxious stat, which I'm a huge fan of. Yes. Uh, and I'm hoping you can get past the fact that I'm not really much of a Bruce Springsteen fan, despite being from the Jersey Shore. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll swallow my pride on that one, Mike, for uh, for a few minutes here. That that could be a deeper discussion between us later, um, <laughs> you know, uh, away from the podcast. But for now, I I will uh, I will accept that. I will embrace that, and and we'll move forward. Nobody's perfect, That's and right. uh, I'm directing that more towards myself than you. <laughs> Uh, listen, you wrote a really good piece this morning uh, about, obviously, the World Series. You're in Kansas City, uh, and you wrote about the, the Royals making great contact against the Mets, and I think that's been a really big theme of this series. Everybody's looking at the Mets throwing flames, the Royals making contact better than anybody else. Uh, and I, I'm curious, that's obviously the, the presiding narrative here, but do you think too much is being made of the fact that the Royals are these great contact hitters, or do you think it's really just that the Mets pitchers aren't making their pitches? I mean, we saw it with Harvey, especially with DeGrom. The velocity's there, but the location's really just not. These guys look kind of gassed. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the thing that stands out to me about this series so far is the Royals are the ones affecting change in that I mean, they're making the Mets adjust to them as opposed to vice versa. So they're, they're controlling the series in that sense. The Mets pitchers, obviously, they, they have the high octane, and, and we've seen, and, and you've done a great job uh, demonstrating how, how well the, the Royals fare against the uh, high-velocity fastball. That's part of it. That's part of what's prompted the Mets to, to go away from their strength, which is pitching, you know, around the, pitching with the fastball, and uh, it, it's forced them to, to use the rest of their repertoire more frequently than, than we've seen in the past. And but you're also right. Just uh, just fundamentally, they're not hitting their spots, and the Royals are hitting everything. It's just just unbelievable. These first two games, 25 swings and misses among uh, 330 pitches, I believe. Um, just incredible contact right there. Obviously, the Royals are a great contact hitting team. That's what got them to and through the postseason last year as well. Um, they do have more power this year, quite a bit more power. Um, but that is still their their signature strength. It's just putting the ball in play. And I really think. Uh, you know, certainly in this environment, that strength plays out, and I just think against this Mets pitching staff, which, as you said, does look gassed, and perhaps predictably so, um, that's been a huge strength for them in this series so far. When I look at the contact, uh, you know, obviously people look at it and they say, well, they're not striking out, they're not making easy outs, and that's true, but uh, really what stands out to me is that means they're putting more balls in play, and I think that really it, it shows the Mets' defense is not really that strong, especially right. up the middle. I mean, Wilmer Flores has played, I think, a little better than anybody expected. Not a great defensive shortstop. Daniel Murphy is not a great second baseman. Uh, we saw in center field with Cespedes in game one. It's not a strength of theirs, and I think that this really just kind of uh, you know, exponentially shows that if you're not 
missing these bats and you're putting them in play, it just makes this inefficient defense look a little bit worse. And compared to Kansas City, I think that's really the biggest difference in this series. It, it really is. Uh, it was a huge difference in game two, maybe even on an underrated level. I mean, the, it's not like the Mets were making a ton of errors, but it was just plays that, that could have been made or, um, you know, somewhat routinely uh, in, in some cases. So and we talked about the error being a silly stat. That's, you know, the error doesn't show that. Uh, always. So I, I think the defense was a, a real big issue uh, in both games so far, and both teams have made some costly defensive plays, but I think, uh, especially with the Mets' perspective, I think it, it, it cost them dearly in Game 2. Well, I look back to Game 1, I think one of the many defining moments of that insane game was uh, Alex Gordon's ninth inning home run off of Jerry Familia. Yeah. Uh, and what was fascinating to me about that pitch, two things really, Familia's got this split-fingered fastball at 94 miles an hour. Nobody else really throws it over 90. It might be the most unhittable pitch in baseball right now. He didn't throw it once during that game, which I found fascinating. Instead, he was throwing a sinker, uh, and he tried to do a quick pitch, yep. which, you know, it, it's obviously he's not doing his full windup. Uh, and we did a cool stack cast piece on it. Uh, Joey Noak did on MLB.com yesterday. So it actually had a higher spin rate, um, and that's not a good thing in this case because right. higher spin, it stays up a little bit. Sinkers are supposed to sink. So instead of being down by Gordon's knees, it stayed in the zone, and it got crushed for however many hundred feet. Do you think Familiar is ever going to throw a quick pitch like that again, or should he <laughs> just kind of rely with what got him there? I, 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 well, that, that, and that's the thing. Like, I, how often do we see that in this environment in October, uh, teams or, or players specifically get away from what got them here? And sometimes it's understandable. You have to adjust, and, and there's so much. Uh, I, I really believe in the value of advanced scouting. Uh, when you get to this, when you get to this point, I know uh, a team like the Astros um, kind of they, they didn't do much uh, from the traditional advanced scouting standpoint. But you know, having scouts, uh, uh, you know, on site uh, in many cases down the stretch. But you know, having talked to many scouts over the years, there are little things that teams pick up on and, and exploit in this environment. But and sometimes that does prompt adjustments, but it is amazing when you see something like you just mentioned, where uh, you know him staying, Familia staying away from his signature pitch uh, in a huge spot there. And boy, Gordon, you just—that's as clutch a home run as you'll see. Uh, just did a, a piece for Sports on Earth about where that ranked in uh, win probability, win probability added, and the 47% swing on that home run uh, for the Royals' chances of winning that game. That's a that's a major moment there in the ninth inning off a guy who was previously untouchable. Now, I'm glad you brought that piece up. Uh, Anthony also writes for Sports on Earth, which is one of our partner sites, and a very good piece on the, uh, I guess, 10 most uh, exciting is not the right word, but 10 most important World Series moments of the last 10 years um, based on weighted win probability added. So I'm going to use that, and I'm going to bring up the question that every guest dreads, which is that uh, as I was doing research for this piece, I came across something that you wrote uh, over six years ago. <laughs> That's like, oh, my God, what did I write? Uh, this is a, it was a Q&A. I don't remember what site it was on, but you did a Q&A. Okay. And uh, your response was, I'm most definitely not a stats guy. I got into sports writing because I wanted to write compelling stories, not because I wanted to relay a, p a player's OPS, which I think is totally valid, and I think that that's a reason that many people did. And I'm curious. Obviously, it's been six years later, yeah. uh, and I don't think anyone would, would have you out there with uh, you know Dave Cameron or, right. or anybody like that, but you've, it seems like you've gotten more comfortable with the stats. Is that you know more of a personal change, or is that just kind of the way you see the game is going? I think it's a natural evolution within this game actually and uh you know I'll, I'll never be a, a bright mind like a dave cameron or, or like yourself but uh certainly i mentioned talking to scouts earlier i think that the best organizations in this game blend the statistical with the traditional um and, and blend it very well uh, i think the giants uh, are uh, i don't know if the giants are underrated anymore but i think they're underrated from that element where you know they they do have some 
advanced analytical thinkers in their front office, contrary to the popular narrative, but they do blend it very well with traditional scouting. And from my perspective, I, I think it's very important for me as a reporter to, uh, you know, have my, you know, dip my toe or even my whole leg in those statistical waters because it is uh, an increasingly big part of the game. It's increasingly a big part of the conversation about the game. Uh, you mentioned the MLB Now program earlier. That's, that's a, a great uh, example of that. And uh, while also acknowledging that the game is played by human beings and, um, you know, there are human beings who, who watch it and evaluate it and, uh, you know, pick up on things and, and exploit things, like I mentioned. And, uh, you know, so I, I think it, you have to blend both of those in, in today's environment. I think it's also, Mike, I think if you're opining on baseball and not um, using the information at your disposal, you're doing yourself a disservice, you're doing your readers a disservice, I think that uh, it prevents you from just spouting off uh, <laughs> uh, with, with gut reactions, and it, and it forces you and compels you to, uh, you know, back things up, back up what you're saying, um, because in many cases the the stats can help dictate that. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't remember saying that six years ago, of course, and uh, I do regret it now. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up good organizations because I think that's a great point. You know, and as much as people on one side say, well, the stat guys don't use this, the 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 uh, stat guys don't use the scouts, and the scout guys don't use the stats, it's not really true. The best organizations right. blend both. Um, and I think you've had a first-hand look at that because it's you obviously are you're based in Ohio. You were the Cleveland beat reporter for many years. You still follow the team closely, and it's become almost a, a running joke whenever a new executive gets hired. Uh, it's well, he was in Cleveland at some point, right? Because pretty much all these guys, it seems like they spend a year or two as a scout or a low level whatever uh, with Cleveland. And that's kind of the news of the day today is that Mark Shapiro, who was the Cleveland president for many years and, and whose path I'm sure that you cross paths with, uh, he is moving to Toronto as of Monday officially, I think. And today we find out that Alex Anthopoulos is leaving, uh, turned down an extension. And the reports, it seems like he just doesn't think he can coexist with Mark Shapiro on, on a baseball sense. Uh, knowing Mark, uh, having spent time with Mark, what do you think the, the uh, conflict there is? Why do you think the two of them, you know, both highly regarded, couldn't make it work? Well, let me say, first of all, that uh, right after he took the job, Mark Shapiro promised me that he's going to get Bruce Springsteen to play the Rogers Center. <laughs> uh, we're both big Springsteen fans. So, but there, there's a point to that, is that you know, that is one element of his job, is he is president of the Rogers Center and not just the Blue Jays. But I do think uh, maybe people got thrown off the scent a little bit when he took that job because it was, you know, from talking to – now, Mark was very careful not to talk too in-depth about the situation he was inheriting um, because it was the season was still going on and he was, you know, uh, sensitive to that um, and, and, and certainly didn't want to step on any, anybody's toes as the Blue Jays were making this run towards the division title. But – uh, this wasn't just a business move. This is a baseball move for him. I think he, he's been involved uh, in the Indians' day-to-day uh, on both sides, the business and the baseball side, but less in the decision-making role, of course. Uh, he's you know, handed that off to uh, Chris Antonetti and, and empowered Chris Antonetti to be the general manager in the truest sense. And I think he misses it. I really do. So when he went to Toronto, I was pretty certain – um, that, that he was going to have a hand in, in the baseball decision-making, and it is inevitably uh, an uncomfortable thing. Now, my thinking at the time was you would imagine there are conversations that preceded Mark's uh, decision you know, with, with Alex about how this might work, but it certainly seems like from both sides now, you can't blame Mark for wanting to get back in baseball. You can't blame Rogers 
corporation from from targeting him as a uh, you know an executive of note and, and somebody who has not unique but but certainly a rare experience uh, in, in both sides of the business and the baseball. But you can't blame Alex Anthopoulos for for still wanting autonomy um, or final say when it comes to the baseball side. These two men have never worked together before. Uh, you know, I'm sure they're very friendly, and I'm sure they've had. Uh, uh, they've, they've certainly had trade discussions in the past, and they've had a, a past relationship that way, but they've never worked together. And my my thought here is just not one of shock. I, I, I know a lot of people are shocked by this move, but, but to me it, it, it really comes down to two men who uh, are, are powerful men in this game and both have reason to have belief in their abilities. And sometimes it's hard for, for people like that to coexist, uh, especially if there's no prior working relationship. So I almost feel like, Maybe this was inevitable. Maybe it's best for the Blue for the Blue Jays, as awkward as it is, especially on the day that Alex Anthopoulos is named Executive of the Year by the How Sporting News. How great was that? <laughs> um, maybe it's better for this to happen now than a few months from now or a year from now. Um, you know, uh, Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll seek out a GM, uh, and, and maybe it'll be somebody he has a, a past relationship with that we're not sure at this point. But um, I, I really think ultimately he, he wants to be involved in baseball still. And... Uh, you know, that was going to be a, a tricky move to pull off to, to come in at a place where uh, a guy has been very successful this year. I, Alex is coming off the most successful year of his career. So um, very interesting scenario up there and uh, very interesting to watch how it all plays out going forward. Anthony, final question for you. You were in Kansas City for the first two games of the series and you just arrived here in New York for games three and four and maybe five. Uh, at the end of the weekend, where do you expect you're going to be headed? To Kansas City for game six and or seven or back home to Ohio? Well, Mike, I mean, I, I want to give you the diplomatic answer and say it's going back for game six, but I don't know. I, I just feel like the Royals, I, I felt all along going into the series, this is their World Series. I really feel that way. Um, this is their moment. And uh, you talk about getting away from the analytical. I mean, it just comes down to like that, that feel that this is their destiny, but there is a lot of statistical uh, to back up that feeling. Um, I think they match up pretty well here. I do think there is some uh, valid concern about the Mets starting staff at this point. Uh, even more so, there's valid concern about their setup situation, uh, even getting to Familia. And their bats are just ice cold right now. We've seen that uh, before with, with teams that have that long layoff. And, you know, maybe they were due for that anyway because, you know, that, that offense has been so strong of late, but uh, maybe it was due to hit a wall. I'm not sure. But um, I, I just think the Royals were, were probably built and ready to do this a year ago. It's just they ran into an unstoppable force, a, a really freak of nature in Madison Bumgarner, and there's no Madison Bumgarner in this series. I think it's their series, and uh, I think they'll wrap it up in five. Well, I hate to say it because I come from a family of Mets fans, and I'm, I'm not one, but I think I agree with you. I think maybe they'll get to six, but uh, probably not. I think it's going to be five. Anthony Kestrovince, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Follow him on Twitter at just at Kestrovince, I believe, and uh, read him MLB.com and Sports on Earth. Anthony, thank you. Enjoyed it, Mike. Thank you. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. With me now, I'm very excited to have the host of Wednesday Night Baseball on ESPN, previously the voice of the Marlins and the Braves, John Boog Shambi. John, how are you? Mike, what's happening? That, thanks so much for your time. Listen, I know you haven't been uh, calling the games of the World Series, but you did call the Mets in the NLDS and the NLCS for ESPN Radio. And uh, I think we're seeing a very different team now in the World Series, aren't we? They, the, in the NLCS against the Cubs, they just blew away the – they blew away the Cubs, the uh, the Dodgers series. Obviously, they won that. And then they're just a very different team right now. What do you see when you look at this team in the World Series? 
Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I think you know this is a, a, a rare instance where you know the analysis was pretty well spot on in terms of what people focused on to look for, and that is the Mets' ability to get swings and misses versus the Royals' ability for contact. And so far, the Royals have won that matchup. I do think that inside of that, the one part that's interesting is, and it's what makes the Met guys so special, power with the ability to throw strikes. If I were to just, my two cents would be, I think they stay inside, they've stayed inside the strike zone a little too much against this team. Um, I, I mean, I was particularly befuddled by first pitch fastball strikes to Escobar to begin the game each time. It's just kind of odd to me. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's exactly what he's looking for. And it doesn't, uh, I don't know. It, it confused me a little bit, but again, they're just, they're not getting swings and misses. I'm not, I'm, I'm in a long line of people that, have, that, you know, would point that out. And then, and so that surprised me a little bit. I thought it would go down. I didn't think that the swings and misses would go down to the extent that it has, the offensive part of it has not surprised me. It is the thing that going into each series I worried about with the Mets because you're talking about a team that was last in the majors for four months and runs per game. And, yes, they changed their roster over, but they went from last, and then the last two months they were third in the majors. And I don't know that I believe that they were actually that good so I don't know that with this group, specific group of players that they have, that we haven't really established a baseline. So my concern throughout the postseason has always been, I wonder if they're going to score. And that has not been a problem until this series. And I think you nailed it about uh, Alcides Escobar. I actually wrote about this last night. He's uh, There's been 13 games in the postseason, and he has led off each one of those 13 games with a swing. 12 of the first pitches he's seen have been strikes, and the other one was Ari Dickey throws a knuckleball. Why in the world somebody's throwing him a first-pitch strike right now? I, I have no idea. If Noah Syndergaard does not bury a slider in the dirt to start off Game 3 tomorrow, then I almost wonder, they can't, it's, it can't be that they don't know, right? They must just not care. They must just think that you know he's, he's not worth worrying about. I, I would go two things on it. Um, but it's, yeah, I think what, in both instances, I would, would have wanted Harvey and DeGrom to throw you know, their 0-2 slider to throw their, their pitch that they would bury in the dirt and, and see how he would react from there. But it's been so clear what his M.O. is. Um, I will tell you this. I don't know the specifics in this instance, but I talked to somebody today um, in baseball as a major league manager, and we discussed it. And he was like, look, these guys are young. And for as much as everybody has talked about it, when push comes to shove, I do think there are two realistic possibilities. Number one, um, that they could – Matt Harvey and Jacob DeGrom could say, well, okay, he swings first pitch, but he hasn't seen my well-located first pitch fastball for a strike, and DeGrom did get an out. So I think the tempting thing is I'm going to get an out on one pitch. But I also believe that it's something that they may not have discussed in a real specific manner um, – which to me, in, in, this is one of those, I understand that everything is not as simple as those of us that are watching from the outside may at times make it sound like it is. But in this instance, what was going to take place was pretty much of a layup. So if it wasn't discussed, that would be at least a little bit frustrating. The idea of, look, he's going to swing. What are we doing with this pitch? And 
I just couldn't believe the first pitch of the series, where it was and, and what they gave him the opportunity to do. And then again in game two. Um, you know, I want to get a little bit into the way you would approach calling, uh, not necessarily these games, but just games in general. I think one of the overriding themes of this postseason has been fans complaining about strike zones for umpires. And that's probably true all the time, and it's just a little more magnified now because there's fewer games on and everybody's watching the same games. Uh, and I think part of that, and we've seen some interesting stories about this, it's about the way the networks show the strikes on graphics. So, for example, TBS, they have it on the side. Uh, for ESPN, you have the K zone over the plate. Uh, and there's been some differences in terms of how those are actually laid out, whether it's the rule book strike zone or the way umpires yeah. actually called the strike zone. Uh, and I'm curious how you approach that when you're calling a game. Do you, do you watch that closely and say, well, this is a ball or a strike, or do you just kind of use it as a guide? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I like our system. I mean, I, again, I, I couldn't sit there and technically, uh, you know, and technically defend, you know, every aspect of it, but I – I do like K-Zone over the plate, and in the long term, I do think that that is, if I were to give you my best guess, I think that's what you will end up seeing. I think you will see the way it is on ESPN telecast, and that is a very subtle ring, and then if it's a strike, it's in the crosshairs. But look, for the people that I've talked to, our K-Zone is lined up, roughly speaking, in the way that pitch effects and that system is ultimately going to judge the umpires. So by and large, um, I would say that those systems do a, a good job of, of emulating, you know, ball from strike. Uh, you know, nothing's perfect. That's, that's for certain. But, yeah, I pay attention to it during the game, and I, and I like it not being on the side personally. I like it in, in there very subtly. Um, I think it's just something <clears> – <throat> People look. People are going to resist stuff like that when they put the yellow line down for the first down marker. Nobody liked that. Um, when they put the score up all the time, nobody liked that. I think that once you get to a place where everybody feels completely confident that what graphically we're putting up there is really, really close to the exact strike sound. Now, obviously, you got to remember the strike zone is technically subjective. You know, depending on on who's back there, but I, I do think that uh, it works, and I and I like the, the presentation for ESPN. Despite the fact that I get plenty of people that tweet at me that don't like it, um, I think that's the best presentation, the subtle the subtle box around the plate, I think works on every pitch. Yeah, and I agree with you on that, and I think the, the one thing that's difficult, and you can't really control for this, is that at every ballpark, the center field camera is angled slightly differently. So what may look like? Yeah, and I'm and I'm. Look in 2015 again. If you want to get into the television aspect of it, here's one thing. I don't. I mean, again, and this is me as a play-by-play guy. I don't ever want to see a single pitch from behind home plate live ever. (laughs) I want to see every pitch from center field. And in 2015, I think you know, for a local broadcast, I get it. But for um, any national broadcast, I think that the center field camera should be. Straight over top. I could not agree I mean, with just, you more. It, totally. It just should be. Uh, have you had an opportunity to do a game so far this year with, with the stack cast on it, you know, using exit velocity and spin rate and, and, uh, and everything that comes along with that? Um, we had, I want to say, one or two that added some with, uh, with ESPN uh, off of the bat, but not, not a full-on what, you know, the way they do on MLB Network. 
Right. I guess for MLB Network, they actually have a separate, totally separate truck there that, that feeds all that in. Um, you know, you're, you're known, I guess I would say, uh, obviously, you, you know, do a wonderful job all around, but for being a little more inclusive of kind of the advanced stats uh, than a lot of your, your colleagues. So uh, I'm curious to say, like, what, I assume you're familiar with what StatCast can do. What of, of that do you think would be most useful to the viewers without also, you know, overwhelming them and having them just completely shut it off entirely? Um, <clears throat> I would say, I, I, I'm not entirely sure yet, but I would tell you that I think that if I were to go in order, the, the number one thing for the, the StatCast stuff is going to really make uh, waves would be uh, individual defensive evaluation. I just think that that's the, that's the main thing. Personally, don't, uh, you know, don't care as much about, um, you know, like even how fast the guys are running around the bases, I do think that there are times when, you know, we forget and we really need to provide context on, on most stats. You know, I try and do it all the time. When I sit there, even if I'm going to really push OBP, which I do, I do at least try once a broadcast. If I'm going to sit there and say Curtis Granderson's OBP this year is 364, I try and say the league average was around 316, 317. So, and I think that, Similarly, with the StatCast stuff, like, not to be, and maybe this makes me sound like the grumpy guy, but if we're going, you know, angles and speed off the bat with no context being supplied, I don't find it particularly useful. Well, if, if you're the grumpy guy compared to everybody else, then we are in big trouble because you are usually more open. Well, I'm just, but <laughs> no, I'm just I, saying, I agree with like, you about context. If you you're sit totally there and tell right. me it's 100 miles an hour, then as a fan, I'm sitting there going to go, Okay, well, do most guys hit at 100 miles an hour? What's the average? What's what's the average out? What's the average home run? You know what I'm saying? You got to. Yeah. I, I, as the play-by-play guy, if we're going to use that, I got to give the viewer something to to help frame that. Would be would be my thing. You know, like there was something the other day that I found interesting that was on MLB, MLB Network. But again, we don't use this information enough. Uh, but they were talking about Chris Young. They're showing his fastball velocity ranks, but then they were also. Um, going spin rate and that his fastball has a really high spin rate and that's got to have something to do with why he's considered the dude with you know the disappearing 14 fastball so I think that you know there's a lot of good information there but again I, I do think that you know until we can we can present context I think that we got to be careful that we're not just trying to you know stuff the vegetables down everybody's throat you know yeah, I agree totally and I think a lot of it also has to do with medium like for example if you're writing it in an article you can say that uh, if you're on air, you can say that Twitter gets a little tough because there's only so much information to squeeze into that 140 characters. But I agree with you. I mean, no doubt. Without, co- without context, it's not going to catch on. Um, I think that that is true for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask you, so you wrote, uh, I guess you did a guest piece for Baseball Prospectus. This is, wow, five years ago now. Do you believe 2010 yeah, is five years ago? Yeah, a long while ago. ago. <laughs> so, uh, and I had not, not actually seen this until today, and I, I really liked it because, well, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, you know, you're like advanced stats, you must want wins above replacement, weighted runs created on every broadcast. And I said, well, not really. You know, I don't think that that's so much important to get the smart stuff in as it is to get the less useful stuff out. Uh, and it yes. turns out you basically wrote exactly that. You said it's about... Uh, yeah, I, I think it's crucial to not disinform. Right, and so, I think you do, uh, you do a great job of that. And uh, so what I'm curious about is I, I look at your Wednesday night broadcast statement. I think Doug Glanville is excellent. Uh, and I like Rick Sutcliffe a lot, but I know he's a lot more old school. And so I'm curious about how you guys kind of coexist where you maybe don't want to put something in that would, uh, would appeal to him and maybe vice versa. Um, <clears throat> we'll start here. Uh, I mean, Sut's not going to be 
I don't think I, I'm going to, you know, push him to necessary. Look, he, he pitched, and, and to him I would say still individual win totals. Are, it's going to be a default place for him. But when we start to get into theory, the thing that I love about Rick is that, you know, Dougie is going to sit there and talk about Justin Turner isn't as good in this direction, and he's, you know, minus five as the numbers show you, uh, you know, over at third base, which I love, and I think it's so it's good information to be passing along. And when we get into theory discussion, you know, Doug's in, and he's willing to, he's willing to chat about it. The thing I love is that Sud is not going to bail on the conversation when we get into analytics, et cetera. He's going to look to participate somehow, um, some way, and he's he's open to listen. So um, it's one of the things I really love about working with him because, yeah, there's no doubt he comes from a from a different perspective, and if he's going to cite stats. Um, you know, we got into a great one. We had a really good three, you know, three-person argument about the Cy Young, and it was probably two weeks to go in the season. Um, and I, you know, look, I, I voted or my pick was Kershaw at the time, and I was just really emphasizing the value of strikeouts. And if we're really trying to isolate performance, et cetera, um, and he had Arietta and and Dougie had uh, had Granky, and it was. I thought it was a, an interesting talk. I wish we had a little more space for it, but it was it was good and su- certainly willing to uh, to participate. And I do like that part. Yeah, and I agree. I actually like the the interplay because you don't want to have two guys who are too much alike in either way, really, because that allows for a good back and forth. Um, I do think you guys yes, did a great absolutely. job. Absolutely. Uh, so let's finish off with just a couple questions here. Answers in thirty seconds or less. Will you ever use the uh, stat? And I use that term loosely. Shut down innings. And is the answer no? Um, I think I, I would say that I'm already guilty of it, so I don't know where that leaves us. <laughs> I think I, I think at some point in my career I've used it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I I, I don't. I mean, look, I, if you want, all I tell you is this really quickly. That one doesn't bother me so much because do I think that there's some? I don't believe much in momentum as as a general idea in game. I think there's a little something to it. And yes, I do believe that there there usually are little swings. So if you can stop your other team from scoring right after your team scored, sure, whatever. I don't, it's it's not a big one for me. Have you ever been in a situation uh, like we saw in Game One where the power's gone out while you're broadcasting a game or, or lost the transmission? Ooh, um, not that I'm aware of. I'm sure lots of people have wished, but not that I'm. I can't think of anything. Uh, I can't think of anything in in any major setting. We may. Yeah, I don't not not that I'm aware of. Well, I, I guess that, that's of. a good run for you. Haven't been in the business for about 15 years or so. Yeah. Uh, do you? Uh, this is a question from a fan. What is your opinion? And I'm guessing I might know the answer to this on uh, on jinxing a no hitter on, on the air. Oh my gosh, I have a very <laughs> strong opinion on this. Wow. Um, I despise the people that tweet at me. No, I shouldn't say that. I despise when people tweet at me. That I'm, I'm going to say it so many times. I can't. I'm going to punch you in the face with the word no hitter. It's my job, man. I'm sorry. And if you think I'm jinxing it, let's all go to Vegas, and I'll prove to you that I don't have that power. I, 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 it's, it's my job. That's it. I, I, you know, it's like Vince Scully does it. That's good enough for me. But I, I will tell you this. I had it happen to me in a game a couple years ago 
where it was going to the ninth and a pitcher was dominating, but they, they were doing the cutesy thing, and I didn't realize it until I flipped around on my iPad, and I almost missed the guy giving up, you know, having the no-hitter broken up because they weren't explicitly stating it. I think you have to do it. I'm not in the majority necessarily on that, but I believe that so strongly. I, you know, I almost phrased that question in, do you not care about that, or do you actually get angry when people ask you about it? Uh, and I guess that question's been answered. Final question, how does this podcast, and you can be totally honest, compare to the Cespedes Family Barbecue podcast, uh, which you are fresh <laughs> off? I like those guys, man. Those guys are great. Um, I, I, you know what? Look, they're, they're young. They love baseball. They're watching playoff games in Denmark and over in, uh, in London. God bless them. They're like, that's, if, look, if Major League Baseball wants to know how do you keep young people interested, go talk to those two guys. Um, but this, uh, this is great, too, because this is uh, – you certainly got – asked me some questions that got my, uh, get, that got my brain uh, motoring. So uh, I've enjoyed them both. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, John Chambi from Wednesday Night Baseball on ESPN. Despite the fact that he's a proud alum of Boston College, go BU. We like him very much anyway. One of my favorites. John, thanks so much for your time. All right, you got it, Mike. My pleasure. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Tune in next week. Thanks to my guest, uh, John Shiambi from ESPN and Anthony Kestrins from MLB.com. Catch you next week. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.